Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. These stories contain distressing themes and brief descriptions of violence. This content is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. August 1990 had begun with a heatwave across the UK and Ireland. By Friday the 3rd, England had its hottest day ever recorded at the time, 37.1 degrees. Those four days would now be referred to as the 1990 heatwave. On the southern edge of County Durham, just east of Darlington, 44-year-old Anne Heron had spent the latter part of the morning of Friday the 3rd of August sunbathing in her yard. She and her husband Peter lived in a large 1930s two-storey detached property near the village of Middleton St George, set back around 50 metres from the road. At the time it wasn't entirely out of view, but it was secluded enough that Anne could set up her sun lounger in the yard, sunbathing in her bikini with a book, and be hidden away from the busy A67. Peter went to work at his office that morning as he did every day, only minutes away in the village. He was, at the time, the operations director for a busy haulers. Anne did part-time work as a care assistant, but that Friday she wasn't working. She had popped into town earlier in the morning to buy a birthday gift, but by late morning she was enjoying the weather before Peter came home for lunch. The couple ate together and according to Peter, nothing was out of the ordinary. He left again to head back to the office for two. And Anne took her sun lounger, her radio and her book around to the front of the house to get away from some farm work that was happening nearer to where she was earlier. That day, a few people reported seeing Anne during the afternoon, lounging in the yard as their vehicles passed on the busy A67 and more than one person saw a car exiting the property in the late afternoon. It was approximately 5.50pm when Peter pulled into the property's open gates driving up the long driveway. Anne's sun lounger was set up on the lawn and the radio was still playing. Her shoes sat neatly under a nearby tree with a half-full drink and her book the Ghosts of Flight 401 by John G. Fuller. It was as if she had got up to do something 
didn't plan to return. As Peter approached the front door of the house, he was surprised to find their collie dog Heidi outside on such a hot day and the door was wide open. As he walked in, he called out to Wan before entering the living room where he found her face down in a pool of blood, wearing only the top half of her bikini. Peter went straight to Anne's body, touching her before realising her throat had been slashed. There was no way she had survived. He dialed 999 and then immediately phoned his longtime friend who was at work nearby to come over. When both the police and his friend arrived within minutes, they found Peter by his car, in his words, in a state. Anne was pronounced dead at the scene. My name's Benjamin Fitton from They Walk Among Us. Welcome back to Murder Town, the podcast. Following each episode of Crime and Investigation's True Crime TV series, we'll explore another case right here. Born Mary Ann, Ann Heron, as she went by, had been married to a police officer for 15 years with three grown children when she met the well-to-do businessman Peter six years earlier in the summer of 1984. He too had three grown children and a wife of 20 years, and after meeting at a golf event in Scotland, where Anne was living, the pair realised they shared a mutual friend in Darlington, near to where Peter was from. Anne visited the mutual friend, and while there, she and Peter met up again, leading to an affair that would see them both leave their respective partners and children to move in together and get married in 1986. So, by the August of 1990, the couple had been married over four years and were happily living just a few minutes from a small quiet village with a few pubs and a few shops, and also the location for the Middleton St George RAF station. A few minutes drive west to Darlington, where they had all the amenities they needed. The couple enjoyed privacy, but they were also well-known and well-liked in their small community. A community who would be shocked to find that Anne had been murdered so brutally and with seemingly no motive whatsoever. When police assessed the scene, they found the bottoms to Anne's bikini had been removed and were laying on the floor nearby. Apart from this, there seemed to be no sign of any struggle. Anne's throat had been deeply cut with a razor or box-cutting blade, but no weapon was found and no third-party DNA was located at the scene. Dr James Sunter, a consulting home office pathologist who visited the scene and later carried out a post-mortem, stated Anne's death as the cause of hemorrhage and shock due to incised wounds to the neck. There was no forced entry and nothing had been taken from the house. She had either been set upon without any time to fight back, or she had been with someone she felt comfortable with, and therefore taken by surprise. The way she had left her things outside indicated that she had likely walked away temporarily. It was possible someone had pulled up or the telephone had rung. They did find the dog distressed, and it was reported that the animal became wary of strangers from that point on. 
The only blood found away from Anne's body was a small amount on the telephone and on the roof of Peter's car. Both understood to be there because he had touched her body prior to using the phone and then was leaning on the car as the police arrived. The house, although in a rural setting and quite sheltered, was not entirely hidden from the road, as the trees weren't overly large and the spot where Anne was sunbathing could be easily seen from tall vehicles while driving on the A67. Detective Superintendent Keith Redman would lead the hunt for the killer and an incident room was opened at the Darlington Police Station, along with a free and confidential hotline number. A temporary incident centre was set up along the A67 on a stretch of road near the house, and officers began a campaign pulling over more than 1,000 cars in the first week, hoping that someone may have driven the same route on the day and would have information. Door-to-door inquiries covered the houses that dotted the area, and also several businesses and factories situated in an industrial park nearby on Yarm Road. Peter made a distressed and emotional plea on television, asking anyone who knew anything to come forward. He asked for the community to think about any man, possibly their husbands or partners, who may have been acting suspiciously. Peter put forth a £500 reward for the arrest and successful prosecution of Anne's killer, a sum he would later increase to 5000 Police began receiving a huge number of calls and started to drip new information to the public. An empty blue car, reported as possibly five years old and being one of three makes, a Ford Sierra, a Mazda 626 or an Austin Montego, was seen parked in a small off-road entrance near the roundabout that joins the A66 to the A67, just around the corner from the couple's home. That same blue car was then sighted by five different witnesses at 5.05pm that afternoon exiting the Heron property. A family of four and a taxi driver had all remembered the car because of the way the man was driving. The driver, possibly in his 30s, was very tanned, and he sped out of the Heron's driveway dangerously, almost crashing into another vehicle. A large distinctive CB-style aerial was attached to the car, with chrome-coiled springs. One of the men who witnessed the car went driving around with detectives to car yards and showrooms, trying to ascertain the exact make and model. Police revealed that the car seen parked had two people inside, a man and a fair-haired woman, who they could not rule out as being Anne. They acknowledged that it could have been a completely different courting couple, but until the pair came forward, this particular line of inquiry would not be ruled out. To this day, police have never had anyone come forward and have never identified who these people were nor did anyone come forward to say they had been the driver of the car scene exiting the property. The amount of calls and pieces of information that police obtained grew to an unprecedented number, admitting they had thousands of pieces of information and were struggling to keep up with calls coming in from the public, asking that, quote, people who have information they think is vital and cannot wait a few days should still call in. 
a blood-stained sheet and a heavily blood-soaked piece of carpet were found the day after Rand's murder, 40 miles away in Newcastle, in the back garden of an abandoned house. Although forensic testing determined the blood was human, police would never match the items to the Heron crime scene. Another car was witnessed. This time a person came forward saying they had seen a blue Leyland-style van with a Trident logo on the side, and three men inside. It was seen parked near the Heron's property between 5pm and 6pm that night. The lead never developed any further. A male jogger wearing a blue running vest and black shorts was also sighted running past the house towards the village that afternoon. Detective Chief Inspector Harvey Harris told the nervous local community in a press interview that a large team of officers were following up a great number of leads which had come out of their road checks. More than 40 officers were working around the clock, chasing up every avenue and looking for the car. An extensive search of the property and surrounding farmland had turned up nothing, and the murder weapon believed to have been a sharp-bladed modelling knife or scalpel, would never be found. Twelve days after Rand's death, BBC Crime Watch showed a piece on the murder on the local Northeast News on Tyne T's TV, in the hopes that more people would come forward and that it might result in the identification of the blue car. Of the 150 calls received on the night the Crime Watch special aired, one was from a woman whose manner was very close to that of a woman who had previously phoned a wrong number in the days following the murder. This woman was also in a distressed state and had hung up before giving any further information. As the investigation entered its third week, police would announce that although hundreds of people from the local area had been interviewed, they had not yet heard from the person who was driving the blue car seen exiting the property. Police had also been informed that a Darlington resident received a call from a woman in a distressed state who had the wrong number. The woman had said she wanted to speak to someone about the murder. Although the police had put out a plea for this woman to call them, they never heard from her. After an extensive search of the property, Peter moved back into the house. Investigators questioned both Peter and Anne's former husband. Peter had left the house after lunch and arrived back at the office for 2pm. The transport depot he worked at was only a few minutes' drive from the house. Peter received a call from a client who requested that he go to his office to discuss a contract and asked if he wouldn't mind driving over as soon as possible as their office closed early for the weekend. Peter arrived at the Cleveland Bridge meeting at approximately 3pm and left there after 4pm. He said he drove via the village of Croft and then through Middleton St George to get back to his office before leaving for the day. Police questioned this route because going via Croft was not the most direct or logical route from Cleveland Bridge. Police pushed Peter as they felt that he had a missing amount of time he could not account for. Shortly after 4pm, Twenty phoned police at 10 to 6. As the police began investigating Peter, 
he would realise that he was not able to hide the fact that he had been having an affair with a barmaid from his local golf club. She had been the reason for his detour home that day, as he had phoned her to see if he could stop by. Although this would come as a shock to the family and would not paint Peter in a very good light, it would eventually prove that he had been nowhere near his home until he returned just before six to find Anne murdered. Police questioned whether Anne herself had another lover, but Peter nor her family could reconcile that being the case. Both those that knew Anne and police would admit that it seemed most logical that Anne had likely known her attacker, and Peter had been adamant that Anne was sunbathing in her bikini because she was in her own yard and fairly secluded. He did not believe that she would ever answer the door to anyone they didn't know or know well, dressed in a bikini. Detectives went to Glasgow to interview Anne's former husband and family, and again they found no one who was unaccounted for or who had any motive for the murder. Detective Superintendent Keith Redmond warned the public that the man they were seeking was very dangerous and could very well kill again. The ferocity of the attack proved that he may stop at nothing if confronted. They were treating the attack as sexually motivated, even though there were no physical signs of assault. He was likely to have left the house covered in a great deal of blood, and they admitted that although there was a chance she was taken by surprise by a stranger, they were more inclined to believe that she either knew her killer or at least recognised him. After all lines of inquiry were seen to, and all witnesses at the time had come forward, it was revealed that Peter had not been the last person to see Anne alive when he left her after lunch. At 3.30pm, a friend of Anne's had been passing the house on a bus, sitting high enough off the road to see onto the property and see Anne sunbathing. Piecing together the eyewitness accounts, Detectives determined that the most likely scenario was that the blue car had visited the property around 4.15pm after being seen stationary near the roundabout. The car had possibly remained at the property for up to 45 minutes with Anne's murder taking place very close to 5pm and with the car being seen for the last time speeding out of the driveway. It was at the time and is still now believed almost 30 years on that the driver of the blue car holds the key to what occurred at the house that afternoon. The inquiry continued for months, eventually dying down with no new lines to follow. By that time, police had retained over 1,500 items from the house in hopes that one day, advances in scientific testing would prove fruitful. Over 100,000 man-hours had been logged on the case, with more than 4,000 statements being taken from over 7,000 people. Peter's affair with the other woman had been kept under wraps by police, but was soon exposed by the media. He confirmed that they had ended their relationship when the murder happened. Although the papers printed her name and ran a story about her family and the reaction to the news, Peter remained protective of her identity and refused to have her dragged through the press. As a result of the affair becoming public, he and his children would become the target of abuse in the community, with some labelling him as the murderer. 
That November, an inquest into the death of Anne Heron was opened in Darlington, but was soon adjourned for further police investigation after Detective Superintendent Redmond confirmed that their inquiries were still ongoing. Originally postponed for three months, the inquest would resume the following year, but the coroner would release Anne's body for cremation and for the family to have a service for her. During this time, Durham police were heavily criticised when it was revealed that the investigation had reached over £200,000 over the force's overtime spending budgets. Following this, police stated that they had several detectives present at the funeral, keeping watch over the 100 or so mourners, and that there was every chance that Anne's killer was there. Said by Detective Superintendent Redman at the time, quote, whether the person was in the congregation or is some other person whom we may not have met yet, we just don't know. What we do know is we intend to keep inquiries going until we have exhausted every possibility. As the investigation continued, a team of psychologists were brought in to create a psychological profile of the killer, a method they had seen work well especially for serial rape and murder cases elsewhere in the United Kingdom and the United States. Despite this, the investigation stalled again and details contained in the profile were not, and are still not, public. On the first anniversary of Anne's murder, her 26-year-old daughter made a public appeal for information, pleading for people to come forward with any information or if they were shielding someone to speak with detectives. Seven calls came in as a result, but again, the leads went nowhere. In 1992, police revealed that they were still on the hunt for the killer, and the inquiry by that time had become the longest-running murder investigation in County Durham. The investigators were still searching for the driver of the blue car, but still they had not had any leads on who it was. Peter remarried in 1993 and made no apologies for it when questioned by the press. His reward, by this time £5,000, was still being offered to anyone who could help convict the killer. The woman he married like Anne had previously been married to a Scottish police officer. Another interesting thing was that on the day of the wedding, at a church ceremony in Scotland, two uniformed police officers stood outside the church as the couple wed. Even so, the case would go quiet again until October 1994, when an emergency team was put together to jump back on the murder case, following a series of mocking letters being posted to both the family of Anne and the police officers investigating the killing. Detective psychologists and forensic experts joined forces to study the letters, which were taunting those involved, claiming to be from Anne's killer. Detectives went back out and collected handwriting samples of all the people who were connected to Anne back in 1990. Detective Superintendent Redman, who had led the inquiry from the beginning, confirmed to the Newcastle Journal newspaper in its 14th of November 1994 edition that, quote, 
The letters contained vivid and authentic detail and could have been written by the killer. Handwriting experts have concluded that all the letters were written by the same person. Anne's daughter went to the public once again, including the second time the case was shown on Crime Watch. She pleaded for somebody to come forward with information. Both family and police believe that someone was sheltering the killer, that someone may know who did this, and they may be the person they could get to come forward. The local newspaper, the Northeastern Echo, which covered the story extensively and has continued to be the local source for any updates, also received a letter. Careful not to reveal too much of what was said, the news outlet published an article stating that their letter began with, quote, Northeastern Echo. Hello, editor. It's me, Anne Heron's killer. And ended with, quote, Your readers will have plenty to talk about. Signed, the killer. Peter Heron spoke out again, repeating his pleas for help, this time also adding that if the letters turned out to be a hoax, what he thought of the writer would not be printable. It would be another 11 years before the case would return to the press. In 2005, 15 years after the murder of Anne Heron and after the heating up of a cold case review, her husband, Peter Heron, was arrested and charged with her murder. No details were publicised. Three months after his arrest, Durham police and the prosecuting team confirmed that after careful consideration of the forensic evidence, all charges against Peter Heron were dropped. Peter's lawyer stated that he would be filing a civil claim for damages on behalf of Heron. Heron had a solid alibi, and it was assumed that evidence against him must have been linked to forensic evidence kept on file, and therefore looming questions over its validity. The Northern Echo printed a series of articles on Anne's murder, and the fact that it was the region's only unsolved murder on file. As a result of this exposure, a man came forward to the paper saying that he had given a witness statement to police in 1990, which had never been made public, but in light of the case being cold for so long, he felt compelled to reach out to the newspaper and reporter Chris Lloyd. He had kept quiet for almost 20 years. His witness account was not something that would have changed the direction of the investigation necessarily, and it wouldn't have made a difference to Anne's supposed time of death, but what it did alter was that he may have been the last person to see her alive, and not the woman on the bus. It also suggested that Anne had left the property that afternoon, as he believed he had seen her driving towards her home. The strange thing was that the police had always stated that the last reported sighting of Anne was at 3.30pm, when the friend had seen her sunbathing from the seat of a bus. But this man, who asked the paper to remain anonymous, said that he had told police he was sure he saw her at 4.15pm, 45 minutes after the bus sighting. He was a friend of Anne's daughter, and he knew her well, well enough to recognise her from the cab of his truck as she drove by. 
He was driving with another passenger near the Heron house when he saw her car driving towards them, indicating into the property. Anne was driving and he flashed his lights and she waved back at him. He said that there was a person in the passenger seat and another person in the back. As they passed the car, he said to his own passenger that Anne must have had friends from Scotland down for the weekend or something. Looking down from the cab, he claims he saw an object on the rear parcel shelf that he knew to be the trademark of a man well known in the nightclub scene of Darlington. He was unable to say why his sighting was never revealed as the last known sighting of Anne, and it was something he had not stopped thinking about over the two decades that followed. After all, it could have helped jog other people's memories of the day she was murdered. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 2015, shortly after the 25th anniversary, a retired shopkeeper from Newton Acliffe came forward to say that she was working in a card shop two to three years after Rand's murder, when a salesman came in and went to the back of the shop with the manageress to complete an order. As he left, he said goodbye to her with a smirk and then the female store manager walked out physically shaking. The man had, in the course of the 10-minute conversation out the back, told the manageress that he was the man who killed Anne Heron and that police would never catch him. He was going to move to Australia. The manageress thought it had to have been a lie and was too scared to go to the police. But when the other shopkeeper felt the man's description was a close match to the man police believe was driving the blue car, she reached out to police herself 
Authorities stated that they followed up the lead, but nothing came of it. The shop manageress who had since died resembled Anne Heron, and upon reflection, the retired shop worker wonders if that was the reason the man said what he did to her. Despite a homicide inquiry unprecedented in size and lasting almost 30 years, Anne Heron's murder remains County Durham's only unsolved murder. If anyone has any information of the August 3, 1990 murder of Anne Heron, please call Crime Stoppers, where you can speak to a representative anonymously on 0800 555 or Durham Police on 0345 606 0365. I'm Catherine Kelly, host of Crime and Investigation's true crime TV series, Murder Town. Join me next Monday at 9pm in a visit to Bristol, where a murderer nicknamed the Christmas Day Killer prompted DNA laws being changed forever. For more information on the series, head to crimeandinvestigation.co.uk and let us know your thoughts by searching for Crime and Investigation on social media or using hashtag MurderTown. The Murder Town podcast is hosted by Benjamin Fitton. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Researched and written by Anna Priestland and edited and produced by Chloe Frost.